Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome this evening's guest moderator from HitFix.com, Alan Seppenwall, and tonight's guests, Stephen Moffat and Sue Virtue. you is, do either of you remember the first Sherlock story you read and how old you were? I can do it by rote. Would you like me to? Please. Uh, no, it's uh, A Study in Scarlet uh, was the very first Sherlock Holmes story I read. But I read the Sherlock Holmes stories in order. Um, you know, like, you know, those people that can only watch television series in the right order. I was that anal when I was eight. eight. Uh, so I, I preempted Sue, tell them the shameful truth. I hadn't read any of them. Uh-oh. <laughs> Still haven't read that many of them. Um, no, I, I, did, I have read some now. And, uh, but actually, I only started reading them when we thought we might make them. Okay, you know? so it's good to have a non-geek, I think. In fairness to Sue here, uh, Mark and I are obviously, although we keep it tremendously secret, very geeky. And uh, uh, we need somebody to say, no, you've, you've just gone into your own little special place, uh, make a proper television show. And that's what Sue does. So she's, she's, she stays away from the detail of the origin. So was this something you had even pondered before you and Mark got to talking? Had you ever sort of entered your mind, I could do a TV version of Sherlock? Yeah, most days. But I didn't think, uh, we didn't have the particular version or take until we, uh, in talking to each other uh, and admitting our love for Sherlock Holmes and discussing that, sort of haltingly further admitted that we really liked those Basil Rathbone, Nigel Bruce movies that were set in the 1940s. While they were clearly wrong and heretical in many serious ways, oh my God, they're so much more fun. Uh, and and we, kept just, we kept saying, you know, uh, someday someone's gonna do that again and it's gonna be a hit again, and we'll be really, really cross, because we should have done it. Uh, and we just kept saying that for years, really, seriously, years, until I mentioned to Sue uh, the, 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 what we'd been talking about, and she immediately leapt at it, which was interesting, because Sue, as we've covered, not being a Sherlock Holmes enthusiast, being instantly that interested was significant, I think. But you did, I mean, you did come back about three times, go, oh, Mark and I have been talking about this series again. You know, somebody should do it. And I go, we could do it. <laughs> Well, it did take a while, didn't it, yeah. to settle it yeah, so. so, Were there certain aspects of the character that were easier or more difficult to translate to the 21st century? The reason that we instantly got enthused about doing this, instantly in the sense of being two men and doing nothing, uh, <laughs> but, but realizing it would be a good idea if someone did it, is it translates very, very easily. You realize how little, if any, of Sherlock Holmes is anything to do with Victoriana. Uh, he's uh, it's just instantly, even the fact that uh, Dr. Watson could be invalided home from the same war, uh, which we'd had the kindness to restart in Afghanistan. Um, and, you know, two men looking for a flat share. Uh, uh, Sherlock Holmes doesn't like, even when the telephone is invented, Sherlock Holmes doesn't like making phone calls. He likes sending uh, telegrams. Uh, telegrams have come back. They're called texts. Um, so, you know, to communicate with no personal interaction. Yowza, for Sherlock. So it, it actually, it just fitted at every point perfect, even to the fact that the idea of Dr. Watson keeping a journal uh, for many years became like uh, an anachronism. People stopped doing that. 
They've started doing it again in the, in the uh, computer age as blogs. So it all just fitted. It was very easy. I don't, I don't think there was any problem, was there? I mean, there was, the drugs thing, I think, was the only thing that... It wasn't so much, anyway. I mean, the, the, the drugs thing um, has become, I mean, there was a period of Sherlock Holmes movies that became obsessed with the fact that there are about four or five occasions in the stories where he took cocaine. Um, and it, they were early on. Uh, and I think at the point Doyle realizes kids are, are reading, he, he chucks it out. Um, and it's, that's become sort of central to the way Sherlock Holmes is portrayed. We realize that setting him in a modern time and saying he takes coke would just make him an advertising executive. <laughs> uh, and that's just not cool anymore. I mean, it makes him cool in the original stories because that was an exotic thing to do. You're just a git if you take if you're doing that. <laughs> Similarly, smoking, smoking. Um, Sherlock Holmes would give up smoking if he lived modern, in, in the modern day world because it'd be too ruddy and convenient. Right. So those things were difficult, but not very. Yeah. Although it's, it's a running gag in the second series where he's constantly sort of tempted to take up the habit again. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, well, we, well that's what we thought, is he'd have the nicotine patches. He'd be thinking, oh, I'd love to smoke. But, uh, but he, he doesn't. He actually actively gives up. I think that's what a man like him would do now. So you, you obviously started the series with a study in Scarlet, which you turned into a study in Pink. Beyond that, there's about 60 stories or so. Mm. How did you decide which ones I'm going to adapt now, which ones I'm going to adapt later, which ones I'm just going to mine for a little throwaway in-joke here and there that the real aficionados will get? Most of them can only be mined uh, because most of them are too short. Most of them are about you know 20 minutes of screen time. Scandal in Belgravia, which is on on Sunday, the first 20 minutes are sort of a scandal in Bohemia and then it goes off into a different story. Uh, Mark's preference when it comes to adapting them is to take several stories, pick up five in the great game and jam them together. Um, so we just take, well, the only thing that sort of, uh, the two things that influence us are, obviously there are big items you have to cover. Everyone wanted to know how we were gonna do Moriarty. Everyone wanted to know what we're gonna do with the Hound. A smaller number of people, but uh, a significant number, wanted to know what would happen with Irene Adler, so we thought, let's do those. The other things that we cleave towards, I suppose, are the lesser-known bits, the really, really good bits of Doyle that no one ever talks about. Because uh, you know, there's quite a lot of it, quite a lot of those 60 stories that people just ignore, and it's really, really good fun to get into those. So give me an example of something that people might not have known, but you were mm. eager to use. Um, the, uh, one of Mark's first favorites, one of the first things he wanted to do was that weird list in A Study in Scarlet of all the things that Sherlock Holmes doesn't know. And the idea of Sherlock Holmes having a, well, he, he compares his brain to an attic and he can't overstuff it. And now, of course, he now gets, because it's the modern times, a much better comparison of a hard drive that he doesn't want to overfill. Um, so he was, very, he was very, very keen on that. Aspects of the character that aren't really covered. They're always, I mean, because so many adapters of Sherlock Holmes have been so busy diagnosing him and saying he's a manic depressive, he's bipolar, he's some weird thing, they forget that none of that's in the original. In the original story, he's quite a happy man. Insane, you might think, but quite a happy man. Um, and, you know, he likes his lifestyle, he gets a bit grumpy between cases. Uh, one of the uh, things that we really picked up on, if you read the stories, is how often he laughs. He and Watson laugh all the time. They're having a good time in Baker Street. I think it's great fun. They go off and have adventures and solve cases, and so often they end up roaring with laughter. We wanted that element in. For whatever grief Holmes puts Watson through, Watson does enjoy his company, and that's why he sticks around, yes? Yeah. I mean, you wouldn't normally get to Bucky in Paris without Sherlock, really, would he? I think it was a great time together. 
No, no, it's it's a very very equal friendship actually. They ha they have a, they have a riot together. That's why they are together. That's why they're uh, they're having more fun than they've ever had before in their lives. It's one of the things that Mark kept Mark and I kept going on about. Let's not make it a tale of suffering, really, <laughs> except towards the end. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, it is uh, is the story of a very very happy friendship. They have a good time. Um, I mean, how would you compare sort of this relationship to the one that the doctor has with his various companions? I mean, does Holmes need Watson for the same sort of reasons? <laughs> Hello, the internet. <laughs> you knew it was that fun. might be the most incendiary question I've ever been asked. <laughs> it implies, you know, the doctor would take <laughs> Oh, yeah, God, they're all very good friends, is what I'd say. And uh, far too busy having adventures for anything untoward ever to happen. Um, uh, how, how different is the relationship? Um, actually, it is much more equal between uh, Sherlock uh, and uh, Dr. Watson because they're men of, a, of, a, of a similar age. And although Sherlock Holmes doesn't quite realize it, oh my God, he needs Dr. Watson. He needs Dr. Watson more than Dr. Watson needs him. Yeah, and I think that's very obvious in the scandal in Belgrave. You just see the size and the dedication of the support team around Sherlock Holmes to stop him having a meltdown. He thinks he's this monolith of reason. The rest of them think he's the monolith, monolith of reason today. Is he going to take drugs tonight? Look after him. You know, so uh, whereas John, the doctor... John's gradually training him, isn't he? Yeah. To be a human being. Yeah. Yes. Um, whereas uh, the doctor is, I suppose, more of this of inspiring older man who appears in your life or something. I, mean, it's, it's, I think it is probably quite different. Uh, functionally, narratively, both characters lead you, I suppose, to the harder one to understand. Is that fair? Um, and, yeah. and safe. <laughs> I walked among the fire pits there. Well, well played. Uh, yeah. One more comparison, which is just sort of the, the length of both a Sherlock episode and a Sherlock season as compared to, you know, you're doing only three 90-minute mm. movies, whereas you're doing a whole bunch of one-hour mm. uh, doctor, doctor Adventures. Sort of how does that compare for you? It's, it's two very different ways of making a show. Doctor Who, I always think, is about abundance. It's about giving people loads and loads. You know, a, 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 a sort of shocking amount of, uh, of color and adventure. Um, it's the, you know, you, you sort of carpet bomb the country with Doctor Who. What a lovely comparison. Uh, whereas, um, whereas, uh, whereas Sherlock is clearly a surgical strike. Um, <laughs> what's a terrible way to, to compare my shows to. Um, but, you know, with, with Sherlock, we try and concentrate it into, concentrate like 13 episodes worth into, into three movies. And then make you wait for ages, absolutely ages, laughing every day uh, and, 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 until people are desperate for it to come back. Whereas I sort of feel with Doctor Who, we're sort of, uh, it's, uh, it's, the, it's more like the puppy. It's running towards you all the time. It's always going to be there. It's, it's huge and abundant and colorful. So there's less taunting involved with Doctor Who. I wouldn't say that. <laughs> <laughs> it's t the taunting of a different kind. Okay. Uh, there's a, a line in one of the upcoming episodes, Inspector Lestrade refers to Holmes as CSI Baker Street, and, and that leads me to something I've wondered about doing a version of Holmes set in the 21st century, which is, what is, is popular culture, and specifically like mystery fiction, like in a world in which Sherlock Holmes never existed? Because characters like Gil Grissom from CSI are pretty blatantly, you know, Holmes homages. You know, does Fox right. Air House? 
Uh, I've, I've never really thought about it. I mean, in all honesty, I suppose it's very different. Um, detective series all feature very, very reasonable, dedicated people who work in teams, and there are no mavericks anywhere. Um, and private detectives just don't exist. Uh, but yeah, I, I, I can't imagine. It must be very different. It must be a very different world where you can say, "Hello, my name is Sherlock Holmes," and people say, "Who?" You know. So you, you have to put up with that. It's like it's like James Bond being a secret agent who. Everybody knows his name, you know, it's odd. Now, you, you mentioned before people were looking forward to seeing your take on Moriarty and your take on Irene Adler. Uh, Moriarty is certainly not like the, the depictions I've seen before. How did you come up with this specific approach to the character? Well, the problem with Moriarty, and he's by far our biggest departure, actually with uh, Watson and uh, Holmes and, all, and the others, we're pretty close, very close in fact. Uh, Moriarty, the problem is, every. Uh, uh, Doyle invents perfectly, first time out, the supervillain, the best supervillain ever, and every supervillain after him to this day talks exactly like him. They're all courteous and suave and cold and always welcome you in and say, ah, hello, and all that stuff. <laughs> all of them do it. It's like they've all said, have you seen that guy Moriarty? Let's be like him. Uh, and the, the trouble is, and you know, it's in the way Marlon Brando has taught mafia bosses how to behave. Um, so we had, to, we had to find a different version of the supervillain because I kind of thought, and, and, and well, both of us uh, thought, if we have Moriarty like that, he will seem like the biggest cliche ever in the way that it feels as though Hamlet is full of quotes. The fact that he is, you know, the fact that he is the original doesn't excuse you that. Also, I thought organized crime was the great nightmare of the Victorian, but we've got used to it now. We practically rely on it. Um, <laughs> What's our great nightmare now? Uh, well, it's, it's, you're closer to the suicide bomber. Someone who doesn't think like you at all. Someone who does not prioritize their own survival. Someone who, works, who is, as far as we can see, completely mad. How do you reason with that? So someone as bright as Sherlock Holmes, uh, but completely insane, is that I think is our, is our biggest nightmare. So that's how we got to that kind of Moriarty. But, but I mean, then Andrew came in and he just blew us away with, with the portrayal. I mean, that was his mad sort of yeah. almost Joker from Batman, sort of, you know. That was actually, it's quite, it's quite an interesting story because we, we originally didn't end. Uh, the great game, Mark's got the great game, didn't end with Moriarty at all. It ended quite differently with Moriarty, uh, with, just with Sherlock realizing that guy he'd met earlier, Gay Jim as we called him, uh, was in fact Moriarty. And a man maybe in sunglasses, I think yeah. was the original idea. Yeah, that was it, yeah, exactly. I've forgotten the man in sunglasses. Um, and then, but then we realized we had to cast somebody as Gay Jim who could later be Mental Moriarty. So uh, uh, in desperation, I think I wrote up a, a scene for them to play, just a, a scene full of really ridiculous lines like, I could burn the heart out of you. And, all that <laughs> and I thought, you know, if anyone can say this, they can play the part. Uh, and well, a lot and of otherwise you say to people, no, it's going to be a great part, really, honestly. Come in. And they just wouldn't come in. So yeah. that's, that's why you wrote it, really, as a casting piece. And then Andrew came in and, and burned the heart out of everybody. And we thought, oh, well, that's brilliant, but we've got to, we've got to put that scene in now. Uh, so, so Mark and I changed the ending so that we actually see Moriarty and then just for larks ended on a cliffhanger. Uh, Certainly hope we don't do that again. <laughs> how did Mark come to play Mycroft? Was that his idea, your idea? It was an effort not to stop, to stop him playing all the parts. Uh, no, no. Okay, actually, do you know, it was Steve Thompson's idea. 
Steve Thompson, who uh, uh, wrote uh, The Blind Banker and uh, The Wrecking Back Fall. We were talking very, very early on, uh, and we were thinking maybe we'd get uh, Mark Gatiss in his Moriarty, but we were slightly worried, Mark in particular, about is that exactly what people would be expecting him to do? Um, he does actually talk like that. Um, and then Steve Thompson said, uh, had, uh, I think it was, uh, yes, Mark had been talking about Peter Mandelson, a political figure in Britain, and doing an impersonation of him rather brilliantly. And Steve said, you know, you look a bit like uh, Benedict. You've got the same coloring, the same sort of height, same sort of person. You should be Mycroft and you should play it like that. So we thought, that's it, we, we, we'll, make, uh, we'll make Mark Mycroft, a sinister Mycroft, like in The Private Life of Sherlock Holmes, uh, as played by Christopher Lee. Uh, and, then, um, uh, and then try and trick the audience into thinking that he is Moriarty, because everyone did just as soon, well, Mark will be playing Moriarty, won't he? And probably as a vampire. <laughs> <laughs> so we didn't credit him at all on the first show. I don't think he's got a credit, has he? Uh, well, you, uh, as co-creator, yes, but we yeah, actually but kept it. Yeah, but not as a Microsoft yeah, credit, we just yeah, kept right. his name off totally. All right, I believe it is time to open up the floor to you nice people. So if anyone has a question, please raise your hand. We have microphones. Just raise your hand and we'll come to you. Can you guys hear me? Actually, right here, second row, leather jacket. The lady here. Hi. Um, thank you guys so much for coming by. I wanted to ask Sue a question. Um, obviously... Tackling a show like this is very difficult regarding, you know, filming schedules because Benedict and Martin have other projects and husband wrangling. So I was just wondering whether you could speak as to some of the other challenges of uh, producing this show and how they may have changed from doing the first series to the second. Yeah, it has changed. It's, it's a mammoth show now, I think. It's not just the making of the show. I mean, actually, we have just worked out when we can shoot the next series. Um, we have the advantage that everybody wants to do more, I think, so you just juggle them. Once you have everything in place, you can do that. But I th it's, it's all the other stuff that goes with it. It's the financing of it. Um, uh, if we're going to do the merchandising of it, there's the books. Um, and, I, and I think it's also trying to keep control over it to make sure it just doesn't go all over the place. I mean, we, there's quite a lot of stuff that we won't do, isn't there, with the mm. show at the moment. We're not doing additional stories, you know, that. Um, but it's, a, and, and also we shoot it partly in London and partly in Cardiff as well. So uh, I think when we're shooting in London, we try and make sure that it really looks like London and then when it's in Cardiff. But it, it works, and I think it mostly works because everybody really, really wants to work on the show and they're very proud of it, so it helps that way. And we'll keep making them as long as everyone wants to do that. Second row to your left. Hi, um, my daughter's probably your biggest fan, and she asked me by text to ask you, um, Mr. Moffat, uh, how do you come up with all of your brilliant ideas? <laughs> I give them to him. I, I, I steal them from other people. Um, uh, oh, well, that's, that, what a flattering question, so uh, uh, thank you to your daughter. Um, but the honest answer is I come up with ideas because I have to, and most days I don't come up with very good ideas, and I sit and stare at the wall and cry. But, you know, uh, really, uh, I used to say that I, when I used to write comedy, uh, I, I would sit and stare out the window until I laughed, and then I'd write it down. Uh, it's, it's a bit like that. Think of something that's exciting. You wait until it's exciting, then you write it down, and then discover, oh, it's rubbish, and you score it out, and you go and stare at the wall again until you think of something interesting. That's it. Yeah, well, you go into a graveyard, and you think, oh, that's going to scare kids, isn't it? Which is what you do with... Yeah. <laughs> yes. 
Let's, get, let's make kids scared of religious iconography. That's, that'll be my day's work. That's the dream. <laughs> Next question in the back row. Um, this is to Mark. Uh, and I will clarify that I got this off of Gifts on Tumblr and I have not seen the next season yet. Um, but whose idea was it to have um, Sherlock tell Irene Adler that he doesn't beg for anybody and then have him beg for John in the next episode? Did you say that question was for Mark? Because there's going to be so a very long silence. I'm but the man sorry. has remarkable powers. I think we should wait it out. He's coming through. <laughs> um, Sorry, it's been a long day, Stephen. Okay, that's fair enough. No, um, uh, whose idea was it to, to have uh, him uh, say he never begged, never begged in my life, and beg for John's? Uh, do you know? I'm not sure that we ever, ever considered that as a, as a clash. I mean, I think what's going on with uh, with uh, Sherlock and uh, Irene at that moment might not be the literal truth, you know. <laughs> and so I think he was just you know, trying to deal with the fact that his brain had shut down for reasons he had not previously encountered. <laughs> He's standing there saying, there's no blood up here, what the hell's going on? Help me. Uh, but, you know, I th I mean, of course he's begged. I think Sherlock begs all the time. He's trying to show off to a girl, don't trust us. Yeah. <laughs> to your left. Hi, um, I'm a big fan of both Doctor Who and Sherlock, and I was I just see that. <laughs> and, uh, I was just wondering. I know that the time overlapped when you were writing the uh, Sherlock and Doctor Who, and what was that process like to write two such, you know, big, heavy shows? And did you ever feel conflicted? You know, how was that for you as a writer? Hell, uh, <laughs> I think there was a time on the train. Do you remember? when you phoned me with something about Sherlock and I was still doing Doctor Who and they were both filming and you know, they, they overlap all the time. And, and I was just so tired and I was just sitting there saying to Sue on the phone, I just want someone to be nice to me. <laughs> Anybody, could just someone randomly walk up to me and be nice? Uh, no, it was miserable and it was before either show had gone out. So I was thinking, you know, this could be the eve of my humiliation and people aren't being nearly nice enough. <laughs> so it's tough, it's, it's lovely. Of course, it's a career highlight, and I know these are the, uh, these are the best days, but oh my goodness, it's tough. And, the, and then I pull rank and make him write Sherlock. So. But I mean, this week you've been writing Christmas? Yeah, I've been writing, while well, I've been here publicizing Sherlock, I've also been back in my room writing uh, the Doctor Who Christmas special. Uh, yeah. Yes. Ah, you haven't seen what I've written. <laughs> Do, does one character or the other bring with it sort of a greater sense of dread that if you screw something up, you're, you're going to get beaten up for it? Um, no, I, I pretty much accept that I get beaten up either way. Uh, um, well, uh, no, I don't, I don't really think in those. So when, when I'm sitting writing, particularly the characters, particularly the character stuff on The Doctor and on Sherlock, I really enjoy writing those characters, and I think I've got the hang of it. So, I mean, I, I like it a lot. I don't, I don't really dread that part of it. I, don't, I mean... Uh, Whenever someone comes on to Doctor Who in particular, I'm always saying to them, to any writer, any director, treat it like you own it. Treat it like it's yours. Treat it like you created it and no one else has any rights. Uh, because that's the only way you can handle shows like that. If you go around saying, have I interfered with the terrible mythos of Doctor Who or Sherlock Holmes? Well, if you haven't, then you've done something wrong. <laughs> Fourth row to your right. Hello. Um, I have a two-part question. 
Um, first, uh, I don't want to spoil it for anyone, but there are a lot of theories online about a certain thing in the last episode. Um, have you read any of them, and have you seen um, any that are right in any way? Nice try, Dama. <laughs> Uh, has have, anybody the, here not seen uh, the second series? <laughs> he hasn't. Uh, he hasn't. All right. Well, we're keeping we it all fresh some, for him. We have read some of them, and these are our faces. <laughs> <laughs> okay. My second part was to ask you if you were lying, but I guess that doesn't count. <laughs> <laughs> I could be lying even when I say nothing. I have extra lying powers. Third row to your left. Just out of curiosity, did you ever see the Robert Downey Jr. Sherlock Holmes movies? Yes, and I like them very much. Um, I, didn't, I saw the first one when it first came out, and I've only just recently caught up with the second one because we, uh, we were uh, showing Sherlock in Britain at the time, and I thought, that's too much Sherlock Holmes in my brain, but I caught up with it really recently. I think they're terrific. Uh, I think as a... They're really, really bold. Uh, they're, they're much truer to the, the original than people generally appreciate. And I think in terms of the, the way they've reinvented uh, Sherlock Holmes as a cinema action hero, as a Hollywood actioner, is really clever. I think it's really smart, and I, I, I do enjoy them very much. Have to say, though, because I always say this because I'm a bastard, uh, that uh, we always talk about them. They never talk about us. So we are the ones who are unafraid. <laughs> In fact, they came to our screening. Did we go to their premiere? No, well, yeah, that's true. Okay, you, you got me there. But, but, we, but no, they, they didn't invite us, did they? No, that's what I'm saying. They came yeah. to our screening. Yes, they snuck into our screen. <laughs> that's not fair. No, the producer came along. Yeah, he was really, nice. really nice. Yeah. Back row. Next question. Hi there. Um, you are so good with spoilers and being very tight-lipped. Uh, how do you approach that, and is that ever difficult for you to not spoil something for the people around you? Um, really, the only way to keep a secret is to keep it. I mean, I mean seriously. And sometimes I, I was, had this argument recently in Doctor Who. I was saying it, it always has to be need to know. If you don't need to know something, you don't get told it, and that includes me. If there's something secret about Doctor Who that I, uh, I don't need to know, I don't want it in my head, because I'll blurt it out as well. Um, but. Uh, it's really just basic storytelling. Don't do the end first. Uh, and spoilers in the end are exactly that. It's exciting for the moment. In the moment you hear it, it's exciting. And then that show, that night, just isn't as good. So we're not really taunting you. We're just trying to say, you know, enjoy it properly. Enjoy the story in the right order. The, when I was a kid watching Doctor Who, I had no idea even that Tom Baker was going to wear a long scarf. It was a genuine surprise. That's much more fun, surely. I think it's tougher though now with, with the internet to actually and you're going out five months later than we did in the UK it's, it's getting a lot tougher to stay away from them I think. Everyone's got it except him you know, <laughs> <laughs> To your left Hi, so I know this is for Stephen, I know that you're part of like two insanely bonkers television series what attracts you to projects like that? Like, is it just because it's insane and you know that'll make people go mad or, or what's, what's there about a project like that? Oh, well, in the case of, of these two projects, they're just, uh, they're just stories and characters I've loved all my life. I mean, just that, literally just that. I mean, you can't really approach any story from the point of view of what you think other people will think. 
you really can't, that sounds awfully selfish and introverted, but you just think, this is what I want to do. I would think this was cool. I would love this. If you start trying to think, I think other people would love this, you're being an arse because you don't know. You do not know what other people will like. You only know what you will like. So uh, everything I ever do on, on Sherlock and on Doctor Who is, forgive me, to entertain me and in the hope that other people might, might like it too. Sometimes they do. I think we do that as well as a company. We only make things that we would like to watch and then I think you make them well, otherwise it doesn't really work. Again, you can't, you can't make stuff that you think somebody else might like. Standing in the back to your left. Hi, um, I have a question. Um, after the series, um, uh, a movement started happening within um, the fans of uh, Sherlock. Uh, it's called Believe in Sherlock. Um, did you ever happen to, like, did you expect it to happen, or was it a surprise that people like started uh, doing it? It was a complete surprise. Uh, yeah, uh, it, it's, it's very thrilling. We've seen uh, Believe in Sherlock from all over the world, haven't we? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, so, you know, that, that's very, that's, that's so exciting. I don't know what people who have never heard of the show make of it. <laughs> As they're going around saying, Mike, there really was a Sherlock there. <laughs> wow, that's extraordinary. Uh, but I like to think there's nobody who hasn't heard of the show. But no, that's thrilling and, and it's, it's also sort of creative, it's funny. What I like about it is also it's funny. You know, people are having a laugh with it. So that, no, I think it's great. But we love all those things. People send us things. We sent, you know, we got dancing people from Russia and... Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Look, I've got... Finland. <laughs> this is brilliant. <laughs> uh, this is my personal favorite thing on my 50th birthday. Yes, I really am that age. Um, I got uh, a bunch of very attractive Russian girls uh, singing to me on YouTube. And I thought that was brilliant. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> is Russia far? No, um, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> And Benedict gets pictures of otters that look like him. Yeah. <laughs> That's true. That, that was his equivalent. Bless him. Yeah. We also got, what was it, people in Finland? Yeah. Uh, yeah you see a sort of town centre or something, and someone shows Vatican cameos on the old duck. <laughs> <laughs> Which is brilliant. So that's fantastic. And we have time for two more questions. First one right over there. Last row, far left. Hi. Presumably you've heard the Americans are going to be doing a Sherlock show. Did you hear Elementary? It's going to be called. <laughs> and they've, they've made Watson a woman, Lucy Lou. Have you heard about this? I wondered what you thought. Uh, yes, we have. Yes, CBS. <laughs> um, funny enough, they did ask us about a year ago if they could make our version, and we said no, um, that we weren't ready yet, and, um, uh, but we could keep talking in the future. And they didn't talk. They've just decided to make theirs anyway, so there you go. Yes, we do know about it. <laughs> Opposite side of the same row in the back. Hi. Uh, I was just curious, with the end of the first season and certain things that happened, you seem to like your cliffhangers. And I was curious <laughs> when, <laughs> say, I'm, when writing them, when you're writing these cliffhangers, do you plan it out how you're going to resolve them already? Or do you just kind of enjoy writing yourself into a corner and having faith that you're going to be able to work your way out of it? <laughs> uh, no, actually, I do. Uh, we do have a... Uh, an answer. I mean, the only time we really did launch into a cliffhanger without a clue how we were going to get out of it, because I thought it was fairly easy, uh, was the swimming pool scene. We really didn't know it was, uh, was going to be the Bee Gees to the rescue. Um, but um, that's confusing you. Uh, <laughs> um, uh, but this one, yes, absolutely, in every detail, some of it shot already. Uh, and the, 
uh, the various things I've done in Doctor Who, I've always, I've always had the answer, yeah. yeah. You it would have been to. easier to have known the swimming pool first time round because then we would have had to do it at the time as opposed to going back a year and a half later mm. when they'd been, had a revamp. So we, had to, <laughs> so we had to make it the same again. All right, well, thank you all for coming. Thank you, Stephen Moffat and Sue Virtue. Yeah.